If you wouldn't mind taking the word of God and turning with me, please, to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. 1 Peter, chapter 5. I'll tell you at the outset that, Lord willing, tonight we'll be considering the grace of God. The grace of God. And we need the grace of God to consider such a subject. 1 Peter, chapter 5. Begin reading with verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we will end our reading there this evening. Trust that God will bless the reading of his word. Let's ask the Lord for help as we consider this subject tonight. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we are aware as we come to the subject of the grace of God, these are such precious, powerful, and helpful truths to us that we are fearful. Lord, fearful to miss anything. Fearful to not receive it by faith. And so fearfully, trembling, we come to Thee saying, Lord, please help tonight as we look at Thy Word. We, we long that there be a deep spiritual work done in our souls as we consider the grace of God. And we're aware, Lord, that unless the Spirit of God comes and works in us, nothing will be done. So we ask Thee, Lord, to help tonight, the hearer and the preacher alike, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, as we come to 1 Peter chapter 5, I need to be aware that the book of 1 Peter was written to a suffering group of believers. And you can see that very, very clearly just by reading through the book of 1 Peter. He's writing to believers that had been scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You read that in 1 Peter 1, verse 1. If you continue reading down the first chapter, Peter talks about their manifold temptations, the trial of their faith. They were suffering. They were um, dealing with some very difficult trials, hard, difficult circumstances. And in chapter 5, verse 8, the Apostle Peter warns them about the attacks of Satan. And what he is really saying here is that behind the opposition of people is satanic opposition. And isn't it true that the devil is sometimes forgotten about by believers? And we might see what people are doing or, or is going on in a certain circumstance. We won't realize that behind it is satanic opposition to the work of God and to the people of God. 
Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, you have somebody that's against you. He's the devil. He's a spiritual being. He is as a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist, he tells them, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And, and, and Peter is pleading with them. Listen, you need to resist the devil. The devil that is trying to get the church to blaspheme the name of Christ by turning away from the gospel. The devil is behind this. The devil is behind the opposition. And you need to resist the devil. But this isn't just a pull up your bootstraps kind of exhortation here. Peter's not simply saying you need to muster up all the strength you have and you need to resist the devil. But he turns their eyes to the God of all grace. Which is why he quickly says in verse 10, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after that ye have suffered a while make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. And what's Peter saying? He's saying, you need to resist the devil, but be aware that the God of all grace, who is your God, he has called you unto eternal glory, and after you've suffered a while, he'll keep you through your sufferings, and one day he will make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So what is he saying? He's saying, believers, resist the devil, Because you are confident that the God of all grace is keeping you. That the God of all grace is your strength. And that the God of all grace, after a little while, is going to bring you to eternal glory. Because he's a God of rich grace. His grace was not merely enough to call you. His grace was enough to keep you. And it will bring you into eternal glory. And so this is how he encourages the believers. And you know, many times we are greatly discouraged because we don't understand that the God we serve is the God of all grace. He's the God who is full of grace. And it's extremely important that we understand That God is the God of all grace. That he has called us in grace. That he will keep us in grace. That he will finish the work in grace. And really our assurance of our own soul's salvation. The assurance of these believers that they would be kept. Is rooted in the attribute of God. That he is a gracious God. And if we do not understand his gracious nature. We will not be able to resist the devil. And we will not be able to be hopeful believers in the face of great trial and opposition. So do you know what it means that God is the God of all grace? Well, what is grace? We talked last Lord's Day about the difference between mercy and grace. And we noted that mercy is God's goodness extended to those who are in misery. And so God in mercy is considering the objects as being miserable, suffering the consequences of sin. But grace is a little bit different, isn't it? It's, it's still the goodness of God, but it's a little bit different. It's God 
considering the objects as not miserable, but guilty. As not suffering from the consequences of sin, but suffering from the condemnation of sin. And so when it speaks about the grace of God, he is looking at human beings as they are guilty and condemned by his holy law. And so you see that grace is a little bit different, has a different emphasis than mercy, has a different consideration than mercy. Now, we really can have a wonderful definition of grace by just looking at the book of Romans and a couple of passages there. We don't have time to look at the whole of the book of Romans discussion with regards to what grace is, but we want to point out a couple of different things, three things specifically that will give us a good definition of grace. In the first place, grace is God's favor given to those who deserve nothing good. Okay? Nothing good. We look at Romans chapter 11 and verses 5 through 6. In Romans 11 verses 5 through 6, the Apostle Paul says, Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then is it no more of works, Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Well, you can get lost in translation there if you're not careful. But just look at the one phrase here. He says, if it be of works, then is it no more grace? If it be of works, then it is no more grace. If it is of any merit, that grace is bestowed, then it's not grace. If there's any consideration of the performance of the object, it's not grace. It has nothing to do with any work that the object has performed. If it is of work, it is not of grace. So grace is given, it is God's favor extended to those who deserve nothing good. They have no merit. They have no reward that is, that is, uh, that is owed them. They're, they're not deserving of anything good at all. And if the object deserves anything good, if, if what God is giving is his obligation, because of their performance, it's no more grace. So God cannot be obligated to give the gifts that he gives by grace if it is based on, excuse me, he cannot be obligated because if he's obligated, then it's no more grace. And so it cannot be of works. Grace is God's favor given to those who deserve nothing good. But then second, the Apostle Paul, as we look at another text in the book of Romans, teaches us that grace is God's favor given to those who deserve the exact opposite. Who deserve the exact opposite. In Romans 5 Verse 20, we read, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. The law entered that sin might be shown to be exceeding sinful, that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace is abounding towards what kind of people? Towards sinners. Where sin abounded. 
And sin is not an abstract thing. Sin is something committed by an individual. And so we're talking about sinners. We're talking about people who are condemned by the law of God. They have offended God. They have broken his law. As Paul describes in Romans chapter 3, the condition of humanity, he says in verse 9, What then are we better than they? No and no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is nobody that is righteous. Not one individual has ever done anything any action that is considered truly righteous by God, which was why the apostle says in verse 12, they become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So as we've already pointed out, they don't deserve anything. They've never done anything good. But what about the other side, the negative side? Have they done anything wrong? Have they done anything bad? Well, certainly they have. He says their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues, if you deceit, The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This is all of humanity. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the way sinful humanity conducts themselves. They're full of lies. They have no fear of God before their eyes. And then what does Paul continue to say with regards to their position to the law. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And so every human being outside of those who are in Jesus Christ are guilty before God. They have broken the law of God. They have broken the covenant of God. And they are legally guilty. They are legally condemned. And if God will be just, then God must meet out that condemnation. He must deal with them in punishment. The whole world is guilty before God. Red-handed, guilty. They're guilty before Almighty God. What a profound and and weighty statement that is. That men and women are just going about their day doing whatever they normally do and they don't realize they're guilty before God. They're condemned by His holy law in a thousand places. You remember what James says in the book of James. James. That if you offend the law in one point, you're guilty of all. Because if you offend the law in one point, you've shown that your heart is depraved. The law is a mirror. And we are condemned in the sight of God because we are law breakers outside of Christ. And the Bible says in Romans 5 that grace abounds towards sinful law breakers. Not only towards individuals that deserve nothing, but towards individuals that deserve the exact opposite. 
that deserve the swift judgment of God, that deserve the fierce condemnation of God to fall upon them because they've broken his law, they're guilty. And so they don't deserve anything good from the hand of God. They deserve punishment from the hand of God. And yet grace is God's favor given to those who deserve the exact opposite. And then finally, in the light of these two truths, we read that grace is God's favor given freely, which is why Paul says in Romans 3, verse 24, and we'll begin with verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. No one has done anything to merit anything from God, and people have done everything to deserve his just condemnation, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace must be free. You see, if grace is not merited, grace must be freely bestowed. And if people deserve the exact opposite, grace must be freely given. So God is not looking at the objects of grace and saying, when they do this, I'll give them grace. When they're like this, I'll give them grace. Because it's not the the consideration of grace is not the condition of the object. It's free. If the condition of the object determines God's dispensing of grace, it is no longer free. So the only consideration is the will of God. It is a sovereign, free action of God to be gracious to those who do not deserve grace and in fact deserve the very opposite of grace. So if you take all of those things together, we can come up with a good definition for grace. And we can say this, grace is God's favor freely given to people who deserve nothing and in fact deserve the exact opposite. That is what grace is. God's favor freely given to people who deserve nothing and in fact deserve the exact opposite. So now we see what grace is, but then we ask the question, how has he been gracious? So we understand the concept, but what has God actually done towards humanity? How has he actually been gracious? Well, there are really two different ways we need to think about this. We talk about common grace and we talk about saving grace. There's two different ways that God has been gracious to humanity. And first we want to think about common grace. Now, common grace is the grace of God that is experienced by all of humanity, whether saved or lost. It is universally dispensed. So this is indistinct, distinct from saving grace, which is only experienced by those who are born of God. But all men, whether sinful or saved, experience common grace. And the Bible talks about this in a number of passages. I'll just read two to you. Psalm 145 and verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all. All. And his tender mercies are over all his works. The Lord's goodness extends to every creature and every man, no matter how wicked they may be. Be he a Hitler? Or 
a George Whitfield. They experienced something of the goodness of God. Matthew 5, verse 45. Jesus says that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. God does not relegate his good graces as far as common grace to just the saints, does he? He gives it to all. And so let's, let's think about this a little bit more deeply. And what, what ways has he, has he graciously um, worked in, within this, the realm of common grace? The first thing we can think about is the revelation of God. I mean, it's, it's amazing that when you read Genesis chapter 3 and you read about how that Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, they did the most atrocious thing that could ever be conceived. And then what do we read? And the Lord God is walking in the cool of the day. And what does he do? He calls out to Adam and Eve and then it says, and he said, where art thou? You ever thought about what a grace that is? That he spoke to fallen man. That he spoke to fallen man. Fallen man did not deserve to hear another word, to have any communication from God whatsoever. He could have justly and rightly left them in the darkness and blindness of their depravity, never to have any contact with the glorious God who made them. And yet it says right after their sin, he comes to find them and he speaks to them. And isn't the revelation of God an amazing grace? I mean, you, you go to any store in America almost and, and you can find, not any store I guess, but many stores and you can find the Bible. And we're talking about not one phrase, but an entire book, 66 books that reveal who God is and what he requires of man. And isn't that an incredible grace? The people even realize what a grace that is and it's open to all men. The Bible's not chained up and only if you're a Christian you have the key to open it. It's open to anyone who would come and read it. And God has revealed himself freely. You think about the Lord Jesus Christ even, the, the greatest fullest revelation of God and Christ came and he didn't just come to those who loved him in Jerusalem. He came to all and it says that they did not even receive him. They didn't even want him. They wanted nothing to do with him and he came anyway. What a grace. Can you imagine? The lost in Galilee and and here they are They're condemned by God. They deserve nothing. And standing before them is the incarnate God. What a grace. And this this was, in many ways, common in, in in those times. But the revelation of God is, this is a common grace to people. And then I think, second, of the work of the church. 
Every Lord's Day across America, there are some, there's somewhere at church preaching the word of God, somewhere at church proclaiming the gospel. You can go to just about every city in America and town, and they might not be as doctrinally robust as we would like them to be or as sound, but you can find somewhere at some point in time on the Lord's Day the gospel either being read or sung or preached. And what a grace is that. Isn't it amazing? There are people that will come and they will, they will sit in services and they will hear the gospel preached over and over and over and over again. What an amazing grace that is. You see, they don't deserve anything. They deserve God's wrath and condemnation and yet he gives them the gospel. And I'll just remind you of the quote by John Murray. He said, There is a love of God that goes forth to lost men and is manifested in the manifold blessings which all men without distinction enjoy. That's common grace. A love in which non-elect persons are embraced and a love that comes to its highest expression in entreaties, overtures, and demands of gospel proclamation. So again, as we looked at this before, John Murray is saying, You want proof that God's love extends to those who are not chosen of God? Hear a preacher plead, maybe even with tears in his eyes, come to Jesus and be saved. And God allows that speech to enter into the eardrums of those who are rebels against him and who will never come to him. And yet, why does he do that? He does it just to show them how gracious he is. That he would plead, plead with sinners who refuse to come to him. So the work of the church is a great common grace. I think of third, the restraint of sin. Isn't it true that as you've lived your life, you were held back and restrained in your, in your sin? You could have sinned so much greater. We, we've talked about how that total depravity doesn't mean that man is, all men are totally as sinful as they could be. And you could have done far worse things than you, than you have done. You can think about times when you weren't saved and you were restrained in your sin. You could have gone to so-and-so's party or you could have made a certain phone call or you could have taken a certain drink or done a certain thing and you were restrained from that. And that could have destroyed your life completely. And yet, by some great invisible providence, God graciously restrained you from that sin. I'm sure we can all think of that. Why didn't I do that? Why didn't I go further in that sin? Because a gracious God said, no further. He restrained your sin. Oh, and then we think of natural blessings. Have you thought of ever what a mercy and a grace it is that you have a body? I mean, you're sitting here tonight and you've been made in the image of God as a human being. And that image, that imprint of that image is still left in fallen humanity. You have a mind whereby you can comprehend amazing things. We have minds whereby we can do mathematics and we can write stories. We can write music. Bach and Mozart can compose the most incredible pieces of music that would 
that would bring you to tears. And it's just common grace. We as human beings have the ability to, to, to see, to see the beauty of natural creation, to behold a beautiful sunset, to look into the face of the one that we love, the wife we love, the husband we love, the child that we love. We have eyes so that we can look into the, the face of our father or our mother. What, what a grace of God. You, you think about things that you've been able to see, you've been able to travel places, and you've been overwhelmed with the beauty of, of architecture, the beauty of nature. That's just common grace. Think about the fact that you can eat and you can eat food. Think about all the food that you've been able to eat and all the food that people in this world have been able to eat. All the flavors. You know, God didn't have to make strawberries taste like strawberries. He could have let everything taste like paper. Why is it that Food bursts with flavor and, and, and we taste chocolate and we, we love the taste of it and, and strawberries and meat and potatoes and bread and butter and all these things with different flavors just to, just to say what? Just for God to say, look how gracious I am. Look how gracious I am. That all these things burst with flavor and they please and delight your soul. I mean, it's just incredible to think of. I think of the fact that we're wearing clothes. We're clothed. We don't deserve to be clothed. We don't deserve to have a roof over our head. The New Testament says having food and raiment, let us be there with content. I mean, we don't deserve to have food. We don't deserve to have clothing. We don't deserve to have a roof over our head, just the bare necessities of life. We don't deserve any of that. And yet God has graciously given it to us. And so much more, hasn't he? Cars to drive in, planes to travel wherever we want, phones to make things easier for us, and computers. and I mean, all of the common grace is just unbelievable. It's mind-blowing. It's staggering to think of all that God has given over Christmas, people that are lost, that hate God, that want nothing to do with him, sat down by a Christmas tree and, and they had a precious time with their family. They knew the warmth and love of, of a family. They had gifts and they were able to know something of at least a, a joyous family experience even though they cared nothing for Christ. And what is that but just God's common grace? I mean, we, we all know this to be true but sometimes we're not in awe of it. At all. I was walking on a trail behind my house and it was just sunny and beautiful the other day in the lake and the trees and the birds and it just, it staggers you to think. Look at all these beautiful homes. Look at how they're enjoying this life. I mean, they have so much and yet they hate God. It's amazing. Story is told of President General George Washington that there was a traitor who was condemned 
And George Washington had him over for dinner and he put an amazing feast before him. Even though he was a traitor, even though he was condemned, he set the most scrumptious feast before him because he was a gracious man. And isn't that what God has done? He has just set a feast before people. I mean, think about the, the, just the, the infinite nature of all that God has given us in this world. And people deserve not one thing. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 16 where Lazarus and the rich man's story is told to us and the rich man cries from hell, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. Just one drop of water on the tip of my tongue is all I want. And Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things. And likewise, Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and thou art tormented, saying, Now you don't get anything. Why? Because you don't deserve anything. See, the rich man in hell, he's beyond grace. He's asking for one drop of water, but in your lifetime you received your good things, didn't he? He received not one drop of water. He received cups, cup after cup after cup of water. When he was thirsty, he took it for granted to just go and get a cup of water and drink it down. And he never considered, he never thought every time he drank down another, another cup of water that one day he'd be in hell and he'd be thirsty and he'd say, God, just give me one little drop of water for my tongue. And God would say, you had all your drops of water. And the goodness of God never led you to repentance. You took it all for granted and you cared nothing for all my grace and all my mercy and all my love and all my long suffering and now you want a drop of water and I cannot and will not give it to you. And oh, isn't it amazing that when some people die, they'll be slipping out of, out of something that is, is so glorious in comparison to what they will have in hell. I mean, they will be leaving a world of color and art and music and all of the f flavors of food and family and nature and they'll be slipping into a place where there's not one grace. And the amazing thing is that they don't recognize its grace. And that is one of the greatest, one of the greatest sins of saying that creation and all that we experience is merely from natural causes. And our society, by being able to lean on the arm of evolution, has been able to dispense with all of the beauty and the glory and the blessing of this world as simply a mere happenstance. Nothing more than just a good coincidence. But the Bible says that it is the grace of God and that the goodness of God is leading men to repentance. And this is common grace. And, and, and we are to imitate this, aren't we, brothers and sisters? 
We're to be giving gracious people, aren't we? Not looking at someone and saying, when you are like this, I'll give. When you meet my expectations, I'll give. No, the Lord gives graciously. I think of a marriage. Well, I will treat you this way when you treat me this way. That's not grace. Grace is, I will give you abundantly of myself good things, wonderful things, not because of what you are or what you've done, but because it pleases me and delights me to be gracious. Common grace, but second, saving grace. Saving grace is unbelievable. (laughs) You think about the fact that here we are, we're fallen humanity, we deserve nothing, we deserve the wrath and condemnation of God. And yet he doesn't just give us all of common grace, but I'm talking to you who are believers now tonight, he has given you saving grace. Above and beyond common grace, he has given you saving grace. The Bible is very clear that we're saved by what? Grace. Isn't it clear? Ephesians 2 verse 5, by grace are you saved. It's Titus 3 7, you're justified by his grace. And so salvation does not come because of your activity. It's not based on your work. It's not based on the condition of your heart. It is a free, sovereign action of God. He saves because it delights him to save because he's a God of all grace. Salvation is of grace. And I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 1 in order to see Something of the manifold blessings of saving grace before we close this evening. In Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle repeats a couple of times this phrase or this idea of all of this is to the praise of his grace or according to his grace. In verse 6, after he's outlined the blessings that we have in salvation, he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Verse 7, in whom we have received, whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So he has saved so that he would be gloried in, in showing his grace. And he has saved because he's a God who is full, rich in grace. He's the God of all grace. All grace comes from God. God is grace. And that's why he's done everything that he's done in Ephesians chapter 1. So what has he done in Ephesians chapter 1? Oh, we can't go too much into this because it's so rich. But just to point out a number of a number of blessings that are wrapped up in Christ, who is our salvation. In the first place, verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him. And just remind you, the first gift of grace is that he chose us. And that's incredible. Because his choosing of you had nothing to do with you. If it had anything to do with you, he would never have set his love on you. He would never have chosen you. And yet he did. He set his love upon you because of grace not of works, not of your merit or because of your demerit, but just because it pleased him to set his love on you. And when he set his love on you, he really, truly loved you. 
and you're his treasure, you're his delight. He is now going to, by his son, he's going to speed to earth to save and redeem you. He's chosen us. He set his son forward to be the redeemer, to be the representative of his people. He's chosen us for nothing good in us, freely chosen us because of his grace. And if you look at verse four, Continuing, he says, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That we should be holy. And that's talking about subjective holiness, holiness in heart and without blame. Positively, that we should have a holy disposition. Negatively, that we should not any longer live after the pattern of sin. And it was by grace that he did this. It was by grace that he broke the power of canceled sin. And set the captive free. That he found us bound by the the strong man. And Jesus bound up the strong man. And he set us free. And he bound us to the new strong man. Who is the son of God. We're no longer servants. Slaves of sin. But now we're willing slaves to righteousness. Like that, that wonderful picture in Exodus of the servant who is being given the opportunity to leave his master when he says, I love my master, I will not go free. And he says, go ahead and and make a hole in my ear and and, and, and put put something through my ear and, and nail me to the doorpost. I don't want to be free from my master. We have been made slaves of Jesus Christ. And it's a glorious and great, gracious blessing of God. And then we see adoption in verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Oh, what what an amazing thing. Not only has God elected us, and then God has, has made us holy at heart, but he has adopted us as his own children beyond just a creature-creator relationship or a servant-lord relationship. It's a son-father relationship. It's a child-parent relationship. Saying, I have adopted you into my own family. So intimate is our relationship with him that he calls us his children. But to as many as received them, to him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. All the rights and privileges of sonship are ours. Are ours. It's amazing. He has the Father has a son, but he calls us his sons and daughters. And then redemption in verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Redemption is Christ purchasing us from the slave market of sin. When Christ laid down his blood, he wasn't just laying down his blood to make redemption possible. Because the very word redemption, or I should say to make salvation possible. Because the word redemption has to do with purchasing. He purchased something. He bought something. And what did he buy? He bought the church with his blood. And his blood is of certainly of equal, and not, excuse me, not only equal, but far greater value than is necessary to buy his church. He could have bought the world 
He could have bought 10 million worlds of people, but he bought his church with his blood. He purchased us and was all of grace that we'd be his own purchased possession. Verse seven, the forgiveness of sins is spoken of, the forgiveness of sins, and it's through his blood as well and according to the riches of his grace. He has wiped our slate clean. He does not deal with us after our sins. He does not count our sins against us. Not the sins we've committed in the past, the sins we're committing in the present, or the sins we shall commit in the future. None of our sins are counted against us because they're accounted against Jesus. And through his blood, he has purchased for us the forgiveness of sins. Our sins are gone as far as the east is from the west. He will no longer deal with us after our sins. And that's all because of grace. And then in verse 11, he says, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. What is this inheritance? Well, this is glory. This is the the glory of God in the face of Christ, our eternal habitation, as we'll behold God in the face of the Son and forever and ever will be in a world of love and a world of delight and a world of glory on a new heavens and new earth where we will have all of the blessings of common grace and they'll be far more glorious than we've ever known I believe things will taste more more incredible than we've ever known. Nature will be more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. And yet all of it will be suffused with the presence of God. And all of that, all of that is according to the riches of his grace. All of it. Every blessing is because of grace. And that's why Paul said in Romans 4, Abraham was saved by faith because then he would have nothing to boast of. And we have nothing to boast of. We stand with the millions on high around the throne of the Lamb and we worship Him and say glory, power, honor, and blessing be unto the Lamb. The only thing we can say is the only reason why we're there is because He's washed us with His blood. He's redeemed us unto Himself. There's nothing of me that has had anything to do with my being in glory. It's according to the riches of His grace. What grace he's shown unto you and I. And this is why salvation's by faith. Because all those blessings are in Christ and salvation lays hold of Christ. So faith lays hold of Christ. Faith is the only activity of man that is distinct from works. Faith is a resting in the work of another. It's resting in the performance of another. And that is why salvation must be by faith. And salvation is by faith alone and by grace alone. What does God require from the sinner? He requires nothing but to receive him. There's a wonderful hymn by John Berridge that makes this so clear. Gold or spices have I none for a present for my king. All my livelihood is gone. Only rags and wounds I bring but I'll traffic, Lord, with thee, for thy market suits me well. All my blessings must be free, and I know thou wilt not sell. 
Yet my Jesus bids me buy, buy salvation, something sure he would receive. Well, to please him, I will try. So something I will give. Take my burdens for thy rest. Take my death for thy life given. Take my rags for thy rich vest. Take my hell for thy sweet heaven. Now the sale I understand. Now I know what Jesus' market is. Much he asketh of my hand, all my woe to buy his bliss. That is grace. All of your brokenness and your sin is all that Christ asks for. Come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Cast your sinful, broken self on the Lamb of God. I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, because it's all of grace. And at the end of the day, after we believe, what do we find out? The only reason why I even believed was because he loved me and gave himself for me. Has grace gripped our hearts? We need to be aware that the grace that God showed us in salvation is still the grace God shows us now. You are not loved more by God because you performed well today. God does not look down and think he or she is, is really, really, really great because they prayed longer today than another day. He's pleased with it. But his love never ebbs and flows. He cannot love you more or less. He loves you fully, finally, freely, completely. Not on the basis of your performance. You are to perform out of that love, not in order to get that love. And you are righteous in his sight. Your sins are forgiven you. You stand justified before him. Now, every day. And has grace gripped our hearts? I just want to end by asking a couple of questions to see how far grace has gripped our hearts. In the first place, just practically speaking, as we apply this doctrine, do you look down often on others? Because if you look down often on others, it reveals that somewhere in your heart you still think that you have merited grace more than someone else. Somewhere in your heart, you're like the Pharisee and the publican. You still feel like something in me merited God's favor. Something in me merited God's grace. The more someone looks down on people, you can tell the more and more they have been influenced, not by grace, but really by what we call legalism. Second question, do you get upset when other believers are promoted instead of you? When other believers are given a better standing than you, maybe a better place to live than you, a better job than you, a better situation than you? If you get upset when others are promoted, this shows again 
that you're operating on the principle of merit other than simply grace. God has put his children where he has put them out of his fatherly love. He's not, he doesn't have favorites. He's not given this person promotion because they really, really, really deserve it in of themselves. God does all that he does by grace and out of the loving heart of a father. And we think of the prodigal son's brother. The prodigal son's brother was one who did not understand grace. His heart was not gripped by grace, was he? His, the, his brother comes home. His brother's been saved. His brother's given the feast. The fatted calf is killed and everybody's rejoicing. What does the prodigal son's brother say? He says, Father, what about me? I mean, I've always done what's right in your sight. I mean, I've always been there. I never ran away. I never just threw your money away. You didn't make me a big feast. You didn't kill the fatted cat for me. And yet my brother is 20 times worse than me. And you're treating him with all of this grace. What about me? The father says to the son, all that I have is thine. It's like he's saying, You've got a relationship all wrong. You think my relationship with you is about you do this and then I, 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 give you, I give you a little bit and you do more and I give you a little bit. No, all I have is yours. I'm your father. Everything I have is yours and it's always been yours and will always be yours. You don't understand that you're in a gracious relationship with your father. Third question. I only have four here. When you sin, do you quickly change because you're afraid that you've gotten out of God's good graces? Because you're afraid that you've gotten out of God's good graces. If you change because when you sin, because you're afraid that God might not love you as much, your heart's not understood grace. And also, if you change when you sin, simply because you cannot believe you would do something like that. You can't believe that you are so sinful that you would fall into a practice like that, and so you change because you want to change the way you think about yourself. Their heart's not been gripped by grace. You need to understand that you are an absolute wretch. A total wretch who's bankrupt. Your heart is vile and wicked and you are capable of the most heinous sin imaginable. And the only reason why you don't fall into great sin is because of the great grace of God as you come to the means of grace. He upholds you and strengthens you. And when you sin, instead of quickly trying to change so that you can get back into God's good graces, the fact that God loves you in your sin should motivate you to please Him. And the fact that you've grieved His heart and broken His heart should be the great motivation to live a holy life. And the last question, what do the words obedience and holiness make you think of? Bondage? or freedom, a burden, or a joy. When you really have a heart gripped by grace, I mean, when you get up in the morning and, and, and the fact that you slept on a bed 
The fact that you have a roof over your head, the fact that you can have breakfast, the fact that you have clothes to put on, the fact that you have a husband or a wife or a family, the fact that your, your sins are forgiven, that you're in the family of God, that Christ is your Savior, that you're indwelt by the Spirit, that you're going to heaven when you die and nothing can separate you from the love of God. If you wake up in the morning with that in your heart, obedience and holiness is going to be a joy. You will be a man or a woman who runs after the law of God, who runs to the place of prayer, who runs to the church house to hear the word of God because you love the God that you meet there. You love the God you meet in prayer. You love the God you meet in the word and you want to please him. You want to delight him. You will be holy, holy. That's the great mistake that we find with regards to people's understanding of grace. They say, grace tells me I can be free to sin and it's okay with God and so I'm comfortable in my sin. But Titus 2 says that the grace of God has been revealed from heaven teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace of God has taught us these things to deny sin and to live unto Jesus because the grace of God has has caused us to say with the hymn writer, it demands my soul, my life, my all. But but when we, we don't have hearts gripped by grace, these things can become a bondage and not a joy, a burden, not something we delight in. May our hearts be gripped by grace. May we understand the grace of God. And may that move us to be holy as he is holy. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts this evening. We thank the Lord that he is the God of all grace. Let's seek him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we, we bless and praise thee. You are a gracious God. Oh, make us a gracious people. Lord, we're just blind to thy grace. We just don't understand. And yet you're even gracious when we don't understand. You remember that we are but flesh. So we just ask thee, Lord, for thy people, And for the one who preaches, please, please, Lord, open our eyes that we might understand the grace that we've been given. Our hearts might be inflamed for God. Lord, just be gracious to us and show us that. For Jesus' sake, amen.